Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Our next guest is a self-proclaimed resident of Planet Music. He's a bass player extraordinaire turned music executive who has overseen the music for such iconic shows, including Mad Men and Orange is the New Black. He's the EVP of television music at Lionsgate, and I'm very fortunate to have him as a guest today. Please welcome Russell Zeeker. Thank you, Matthew. Pleasure to be with you. Pleasure to be with you, too. Uh, out of curiosity, where are you at the moment? Uh, I'm holed up in my makeshift home office, which I have a studio in, and it's, it's become the multi-purpose room. Uh, my kids could drop in, my dog could run across, I don't know. Uh, I do most of the Zooms here, and then we're in Culver City, California. Nice. Yeah, so, I mean, I kind of want to start with your bass playing, because I know you, you underplay it sometimes, but you played with Frank Zappa and Billy Idol back in the day, right? A different world, yes, but yeah, for sure. I mean, I did everything I could to escape my little town at 17, so... I mean, I remember sitting in my room, my hot, humid little room up in upstate New York, and just my parents had a book of the 50 states, and it's like, kept going to California, California, and because it was talking, you know, there was three pages per state, it was this little book, you know, and it's like talking about the whiskey and the Roxy and the rainbow and all, and it's like, get Troubadour, and it's like, that's what I want to do. So I left home when I was 17. And I went to school at the Bass Institute of Technology, which is now MI, you know, it's Musicians Institute. Right. Much bigger. Um, I can't even remember how many students we had. It was only the fourth bass class, and we probably had, I don't know, 15 people, mostly from Europe, actually. There were only oh. a few guys from the U.S. So it was a great kind of, um, well, it was a shocking way to get... I mean, I hadn't spent much time in a big city period, and I found myself in Hollywood above the Wax Museum at this, where they used to be located, you know, just playing, like, playing my heart out, you know, 18 hours a day. It was so great. We do late night labs, and we had some great teachers from, you know, the old rock days from Vanilla Fudge, um, Tim, God, I can't remember his last name now to Jeff Berlin. Um, we got to play with a lot of different drummers that would come in and different ensembles and take different arrangements, anything from Talking Heads material to Man of Vishnu Orchestra and reinterpret the stuff. It was really uh, an intense program that lasted that year. And uh, it bumped me up against picture in a different way. Like we most of us, the guitarists and the bass players anyway, and I think the drummers at some sometimes too, would get called on commercial dates. And it was kind of the, um, just the best session guys that were around. And at that time, the, com the conductor anyway, would conduct the full orchestra in with a black line that moved across the, str the screen. 
And I remember that, and that was then the downbeat came, and you had to play the picture. So we, you know, it was a great way to learn and find uh, find out your capabilities as a player in some respects, and then try and temper that with who who am I as a human being and what do I want to do? Because I toured, I was more of a tour bass player for the majority of the time I was playing. And, you know, starting out, that's what I wanted to do. After I did it, it's like, I'm burned out. I don't want to do this anymore. And that's when I segued into like music publishing and and the career that I've got now. Still play and I still appreciate the the lexicon of music that was implanted in me during that time, it's still useful to know how to arrange, although I don't do that, how to at least use the lingo that I, so I can communicate with composers and kind of drill down into what the production needs or at least be a decent translator in the process. Well, I think on Nashville, you did quite a bit of, like, you were pretty hands-on for that show. Yeah, we did... Uh, I think we did 500 plus sessions on Nashville and I was at a good amount of those. Um, Just part of it was self-fulfillment of, I miss being in the studio and being on that side of the desk. And I had really great people that I was working with that I'd found in Nashville and pieced together to service the show. So that, I mean, those were some great times doing the Nashville show and being in Nashville so many times over the course of the six seasons that that show ran and just working with just the, the process is very different. Just watching those musicians, you know, run a, ch- a Nashville numbers chart, you know, what those are, it's just a different world, but makes such great sense because we'd have to, we have to transpose up, a key or down a key based on the cast vocal that you had to work with, they have kind of limited range sometimes. So you had to kind of move the whole band up a fourth to accommodate or, you know, and it was at that moment, the national numbers thing made sense to me, but not really before that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. And then also, I mean, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which I've been fortunate to write some music for. I mean, that's a crazy amount of music you have to work with. And I was curious if you could talk a bit about, I mean, that must have been daunting just seeing it on paper. Well, it was uh, similar enough in process, like the the bodies I needed in the music department resembled kind of what we were doing on Nashville. It was a, it was a kind of a big department. Um we do. We normally don't do a lot of AFM work. We're not a union signatory, but with Nashville and then Zoe's, um, we did uh, union assumption agreements. So we had to have the Peter Rotter, the contractors, uh, very involved. So we made sure everybody got paid well. But with Zoe, it was different than Nashville in that Nashville had like almost another layer where we had to find the songs that intersected with the story and the narrative that pushed the narrative along with Zoe, the songs do that, but they're existing songs that everybody knows. So it was sort of a different uh, approach to finding the, the songs and how they came out of the writer's room. And then we had the opportunity there to work, bring on Harvey Mason Jr. to produce. We ended up doing, uh, I mean, in hindsight, it was a smart thing. No one was planning on a pandemic, but we built a studio because because of my experience on Nashville. On Nashville, the actors had to go down to Na- to Franklin a lot of times to do um, ADR work. 
And so when we did this, we've got a, a lot of a good amount of choreography on the show. So we built a recording studio that was a mirror to Harvey Mason Jr.'s studio in North Hollywood. So whether he's there or not is irrelevant because he, he's hearing the exact same thing in that room that we built, the recording studio there. It also doubles as ADR room for us. So, I mean, it's already COVID-proofed. There's the glasses up. There's an engineer. There's a, the cast is out there. So we we can. I wish it were that easy amongst all the different production segments, but music's. You know, we can make music for that show anytime. <laughs> sure, it's a beautiful thing that. I mean, I guess it has changed a lot in the last twenty years. It's so much easier to to make music anywhere. Yeah, it's true. And we've got a good cast that loves to sing. On Nashville, That it's not like they purposefully went out of their way to find... I mean, it's never, if you're looking at it from a production efficiency standpoint or the standpoint of a director, they're never going to err on the side of being a great singer first and then maybe you can act. It's always going to be, this person can act. Oh, surprise, they can sing. Great, we'll make something out of that. And the cast on Nashville became very adept at what they do. Many of them still live in Nashville, have intersected heavily with the songwriting community in Nashville, are part of the fabric of Nashville uh, in many different ways now. Most of them have played the Grand Old Opry. It's really been a nice thing to see them be embraced the way they are. Um, and then have the challenge of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist where you kind of have to be attentive to the line of what's too theatrical, not in a drama sense, I mean literal theater, what's too theater for a, a show like Zoe, a drama show, or dramedy, dramedy, I guess, and still bake in the authenticity. So it, it seems um, real, although the showrunner always refers to it as... Um, it's uh, not zoology. It's uh, it's something like that, where it's just her point of view is fantastical to begin with. So to play in that space. And then um, with Nashville, we had a choreographer, but it wasn't nearly as um, part of almost one department as it is on Zoe's. There's so much interaction all the time. Right. Um, and yeah, as this is a composer podcast, I'd love to um, to... I don't know, get your insights from the uh, being on the hiring side for what what it looks like because for me it's typically just like someone sends a pitch saying hey this is uh, a show here's like a little log line uh, do you want to write music right um, I'd be curious from your perspective like when the composer hiring process starts and if you could just walk it through for some of our listeners sure um, well with a show like that just to give an example. Uh, you know, each show has kind of a different weight as far as how much falls to music and how much you can actually get done with a script. Um, I used to read absolutely every script of every cut, and, and, and now it's really, uh, there's a number of us that read the scripts as they come in because we've ballooned up from, I used to have five shows, I've got 30 because I look after all stars now too. So, you know, you really, in general, it's a post facility is the bring bring the composer in from the spotting session on. And with some of these, it's really uh, we've broken those rules, not purposely. It's just what the 
what the material demanded from us or our, our position on it was really in pre-production when you have to consider songs and then how to approach it, how to arrange those for a show like right. Zoe or Nashville to the production if you've got on cameras to post. And as far as the composers go, I like to give a clear frame of what the show is without giving specific kind of direction on the creative of as to what we're looking for. Because if I'm talking to you and you're a composer and you're up for this, um, if I make it too tight of a target, you'll go out of your way to hit that target to get the job. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean, well, it doesn't necessarily mean what it's what the showrunner wants because they can't always describe what they want. You know, that's, that's part of it. So I'd rather go to composers who, um, you know, th this is the thing that I'll, I'll say. A show like, um, I had a show called Manhattan that was on uh, WGN. And, you know, in general, I'll submit maybe eight composers. It's a one-hour drama. It's about the making of the A-bomb in Los Alamos in New Mexico. So... It's a, I've got a period piece from 1942, and they told me, you know, uh, the showrunners came to me and said, you know, give us that thing you do, like that that out-of-the-box thinking. Give, give us, like, really strange conceptual-type composers, a lot of texture. They wanted to play the music on set to um, influence the performances and to kind of keep everybody in that practical mentality. They had practical tents. We shot it very practically. And um, if you hear rain, it's it's because it's raining outside, you know, interesting thing. So I submitted the composers and it, in general, even if somebody says, yeah, think out of the box, give us something really different or unique as a voice to our show. If I'm submitting 10 composers over a few days, because I learned a long time ago, if I give somebody six or eight or 10 reels to listen to, if they're not from the music if they're not listening from a music standpoint, they're probably looking at a credit sheet and they're glossing over after a couple. So I would kind of parse it out over a week's time and give them all the composers that I felt were appropriate. And then we'll compare notes and say next week. So in this case, you know, I figured, OK, here are my eight composers or 10 composers, whatever I submitted. And I go kind of way left of center like this could be super interesting and has never been done before. And then 10 is probably the most commercial choice for it. And it generally falls to the middle people, guys or girls who just have thick credits. And sometimes that happens. In this case, they call back and said, we have a unanimous um, pick. And I had met with them earlier that week. It was uh, Yonzi and uh, Sigaros. So I figured I'll submit them. And there was only one composer I found that was weirder than they were and more minimalistic. And it was a guy named Jurge. I think he was from Norway and he literally made ice instruments. Whoa. So you get kind of an atone. If you're blowing hot air into a, an ice flute, they had ice cellos, they had everything. And they, they were in a recording environment that was all, you know, surrounded by ice to keep the instruments as integrity bound as they could for as long as they could, you know, but you'd get kind of strange tunings that weren't warped. They were just 
and they weren't necessarily atonal. They were just off, you know? And it was, it was a very cool effect, but it would have been very difficult to make a show with him. <laughs> because it was hard enough with uh, Yonzi and Alex Summers, who had never done TV before or been on that pace. And they were great, but literally they made it so hard on themselves. You'll appreciate as a composer that um, they were essentially doing a full record's worth of material to picture in the same room, like get the band together, play the picture every week. And it was the equivalent of like making an album's worth of material. And they didn't have anybody conforming stems until about episode six. So if we wanted to recreate, they would have to literally get everybody together, give us wow. the picture to recreate the cue. So it was really, it was a, a challenge. I don't think they would do that today. I'm sure Alex, that's not his process anymore, but it was really interesting because we got exactly what the show required, which was a unique perspective from a music standpoint. Delivery was great and all that. It was just the process they endeavored to, to use was just different than everybody else. And it kind of shook up, shook up the snow globe in a way. You know, it's like, wow, that's we got great results. The creative was awesome. It was terrific to work with those guys. For sure. And yeah, you've made some really creative, uh, unique choices as far as music. I'd love to talk about Mad Men in a sec. But just to go off that point, because we had Amanda Jones, a previous guest who mentioned you, she talked a bit about wanting to hire more people of color, women and um, other diverse voices. I was curious how that comes up in your process over there at Lionsgate. Well, Amanda was part of my staff at Lionsgate, and when the Me Too movement kind of started, it definitely caught fire. And, I mean, I had already uh, employed a number of female composers at that time, and I didn't have as many, um, you know, I didn't have the star slate, which is largely like African-American fair power and shows like that. And so... What happened in real time was we made a commitment to go more diverse and to make sure women were um, in the mix. But what I started getting from my staff were all female choices, which I think is kind of the wrong um, interpretation of justice. It's more retribution. <laughs> so... I mean, what we started doing that I thought was super fair was uh, what we want is the best music for the best price for the for our TV show. That's the bottom line. That is our functionality as a music department. So I started a policy of just taking the names off. And it didn't have to be an even mix, but I said men have to be represented as well. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are great... Um, you know, experienced composers that we don't want to leave on the shelf just to open the door to someone new. I want a mix and I want basically a faceless mix. I don't care if, you know, what, what I don't want names on anything. So it was composer one, composer two, composer three. And it became a very, um, I thought, unique way to choose the right person because it was based on the material, which you can't always get because we all have some kind of bias, whether you're a showrunner or not. I mean, a lot of times showrunners will bring in people that they've worked with in the past and they become reliant on those those people, too. So it's a hard thing to automatically dislodge or to open up as a discussion point. So 
that seemed to be pretty successful. Now I don't pay, I think we all kind of do it inherently now. So it's not like a grand policy or anything, but I had to keep, keep things fair as possible. I like to use different people in roles like as music supervisor and as composers. Um, I think oftentimes it's not the best, um, it's not the most opportunistic place for someone new, no matter what their skin color or, or gender are, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing, period, to get your foot in the door. And I think, you know, a generation from now, it'll be much more accepted without being talked about. Because education has opened up, a lot more of opportunities have opened up for even composers. I know a number of composers who have shadowed other bigger composers. And the other thing that was a thing probably when I first started in the TV group was there were still film composers that would never do TV. Mm. Actors, I think, were the first that started to go kind of back and forth. And there were still composers that wouldn't touch TV. It was like beneath them. And now it's, you know, TV's very kind of on par, on par with um, films as far as the creative process. The, the time management and the scheduling is a little different with TV. But still, you're scoring a picture. You have to support what's there and you want the best voice to do that. Yeah. And a lot of those stories have been great to see just because people have been taking advantage of the fact that you have more time to develop a story as opposed to an hour and a half of a film. That's the, dire the directors I've talked to definitely make that point. Instead of having one hour or two hours to tell your story, you can develop it over 13. That came up during Mad Men and a show called Boss that uh, I did too with Gus Van Zandt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and out of curiosity, what are the TV shows that you've been watching recently that have been pushing boundaries as far as music to story? Oh, let's see. That is always a good question. Uh, I mean, Chernobyl was definitely noticeable. Uh, Devs was definitely noticeable. That just aired out on Hulu. And we don't we don't watch that many shows at home, really, because I've got a lot of cuts that are always in, you know, I mean, right now we're not in production on anything in particular, and we're kind of through the post sequence, too, on the shows. But, I mean, I've... I'm very careful about uh, what I watch TV wise. Like I'll, it's intimidating to me to go like a friend of mine, Nate Barr has done a number of projects for us. Right. He's a good, great composer. And he said, Oh, you're going to love the Americans. I, I know you, you're going to love the Americans. He did a show called Greenleaf for us. And <clears throat> I watched two episodes of the Americans and it just didn't connect. And it wasn't bad. It wasn't good. It just was, it's like I've seen these puzzle pieces rearranged and it had nothing to do with the score. He, he did a great job, but it's like I've seen the story just in different parts or, you know, put together differently before. So it didn't hold my interest enough. I can tell if I'm hooked generally during the first two or three. You know, a show that we watch uh, pretty consistently now is Yellowstone that Brian Tyler. I mean, Brian Tyler used to own exclusively do film work. And I think this is his first TV show. Uh, I appreciate his work. The main titles, I think, are brilliant that he did for that. And same with Succession. Uh, those are shows that we definitely will go back to, however many seasons they have. The Crown is well done, score-wise and show-wise. 
so a couple things there. For sure. Yeah, it's pretty interesting seeing how, um, I don't know, TV scoring and film scoring too, actually, have just both, I feel like it exploded with creativity the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. It's not just the orchestral big. Um, yeah. Well, I things. think TV in particular, there's more, there's more tolerance for experimentation. I'll put it that way. Cool. I just have a couple last questions. I did want to bring up that I think you were one of the first people to license a Beatles song for Mad Men, and you did it, I guess, technically two times with Zoe's with help. Uh, yes, although, okay, so Mad Men, yes, it was the first Beatles master, original master that was used, and that was a tricky negotiation on the the license side, pr- primarily because you know. I, we couldn't talk about it. Everything to, to do with Mad Men was uh, subject to NDA. Uh, I mean, every set visit, I did most all of the table reads. I would be there um, with cast. So that was kind of a unique way to see the show from the inside out. And <clears throat> with the Beatles track, it's something we, we had gone to the Beatles at least two times before for different songs on Mad Men in earlier seasons. And I think we used the Beatles in season five, episode seven, I think. Uh, And that was Tomorrow Never Knows. And, you know, the character of Don is um, realizing that he's married a much younger person in Megan, played by Jessica Perret. And he he was coming to grips with the fact that he could... He could be out of touch or off his game, uh, and it was out of, outside of his control. And even when he put that on, it was like a tolerance effort on his part because all the kids were listening to the Beatles, and it's like he got halfway through that uh, and and took the needle off. You know, he, he couldn't finish it. So that was the point of it. So when we went to do the license, uh, you know, the Beatles group, Apple Corps, it has to be a unanimous vote to move uh, sinks or masters along. So, and you never get a reason why. Nor- normally, you know, we just had a situation this week where Florence and the Machine turned down a lot of license requests and we got a denial and we had already segued to something else because I, I knew it was going to be a difficult land. But um, I think that, uh, you know, the Beatles never gave a reason why. So we weren't sure if it was just a money issue that they had denied Mad Men. They didn't like the show. I had some relationship to Paul at the time, so I was able to engage him a little bit. I know Matt Weiner, the showrunner, met with Jeff Jones, who runs Apple Corps in the UK. But it's Olivia and it's um, Yoko, Paul, Ringo and Jeff Jones all have a voice in this stack of requests that come in and <clears throat> the stars aligned that week or whatever, the money was right. And we got the approval and it, that was, it was so great, but we couldn't talk about it, you know? Right. And then the day after the show aired, I had an AMC on the line with me with, with a reporter from um, the wall street journal who wanted details on the money that we'd spent. And it's like, I'll talk about the nuance, I'll talk about the other songs that were turned down, but I can't disclose what we pay for licenses. I mean, it's, I'm not going to shoot myself in the foot. Didn't the staff reporter call and ask how much it would cost to someone else? He he called, I wouldn't give the answer, so he 
he likely turned to Sony Music, but he the information he got was probably $250,000. So the headline that came out later that day was, you know, Madman pays, you know, all you need is a little money. It was some clever trick on another Beatles title that all you need is $250,000 and a little luck or something like that. And I, then my phone started ringing from my CEO and a lot of other people who were, weren't really pleased with the headline. And it's like, I'm not going to disclose any information like that. And the sad part about journalism today is by the end of the day, 30 people had run the story. This guy at least, you know, had the gumption to ask me and to go deeper into the story. Everybody else just ran bits of his story. It was so sad. It's like no one, no one digs for the truth. So it was a final straw with me and the press, I think. <laughs> but it was a great use, and uh, that was really something I've, you know, we'll all always be proud of. And the music supervisor had a lot to do with that, too, Alex Petsavis. For sure, one of the best. Netflix now, too, right? What's that? Oh, she's at Netflix now, too. I think she starts in August. Yeah, that's right. Right. Uh, but yeah, I think Mad Men and uh, the other show... I'm pretty sure you worked on Blue Mountain State. Yeah, that's... It's one of my favorites. That's a while ago. music. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I never heard of Rev Theory before, but then seeing them in the show and just hearing that theme song constantly. And yeah. do you know who scored that epi- the uh, season, the series? No, I don't. Mark Mothersbaugh. Amazing. Wow. Music supervisor, Madonna Wade Reed. Whoa. And we did two seasons for Spike TV, which is now Paramount. And years after the, the episodes had aired, the guys, the same guys, the cast and the producers did like a direct-to-video version of a film, a film version of, of that right, that did land. really, really well, too. For sure. It was uh, all funded by them. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> Smart guys. For sure. Well, I just have one final question um, in terms of raising a spotlight. I was curious, like, who are five people that you would like to see on a guest on this type of podcast, whether it's music supervisors, composers? Oh, in the music world? Yes. Oh, that could take me a minute. Let's see. Well, I'm really got one of the best staffs I've ever had. Uh, Samantha Hilscher would be a great guest. Whitney Pilser would be a great guest. How about Amanda Krieg-Thomas? You know who that is? Mm-hmm. Music Soup. Music Soup. She used to work for first Business Affairs, then for me at Lionsgate, before becoming a highly rated and successful music supervisor on her own. Stephanie Economou, who uh, worked with Harry Gregson Williams for many years and is now out on her own. And we've, she's uh, the, our composer for Step Up, the series. Right. I think she'd yes. be great. She's amazing. And Matt Head does the uh, songs for that as well. Matt Head's another one. That's a great That's yeah. a great option. Matt Head. Great. It's a cool list. Well, uh, Russell, really appreciate having you on. And thank you for sharing, sharing your knowledge and thoughts. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for reaching out, Matthew. Have a good rest of your day and rest of your week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.